True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the ninth episode of Season 4 and Episode 49 of the True Crime Fix Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all of the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. Firstly, I would like to welcome Gwen to the True Crime Fix Patreon family. I am, as always, eternally grateful for any assistance that you can give this show during these difficult times. If you would like to join Gwen, then please visit www patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast today we are embarking on the second part of the crimes of modern times series and we are reflecting on the instance which happened on the 15th of march 2019 in the city of christchurch in new zealand this is technically the second attempt that i have made to do this case as I tried to do one over the weekend that it happened. I have since realised, though, that me talking into a live microphone is not as good as when I have had time to write what I am thinking and formulate a half-decent structure. I deleted it after about 10 minutes of publishing it, and I'm glad I did, as it was a rushed effort and did not do justice to the victims and what happened on that day. So just to explain as to why I've gone straight to Christchurch instead of doing them in chronological order as I intended. The Paris and Manchester attacks which I intended to cover first have more information coming out about them imminently and I want to be able to use the most up-to-date material. I do want to thank Jenny Vidler for helping me with this research. For those of you who have not experienced ever writing a script Sometimes, when you are researching certain cases, they overwhelm your life. For example, I told the London case over 10 weeks, which totaled six and a half hours content. Therefore, you can imagine how draining it sometimes gets. Jen has kindly stepped in and offered assistance with the research side of things, for which I am incredibly appreciative of. Before I go on, Please remember that this episode is based on the testimony of those that were there and official reports. Therefore, some of the information contained within this case is both graphic and also may contain derogatory terms which are not my views. So enough of me taking up too much of your time. And without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve. And this episode has been dedicated to the memory 
of all of those that lost their lives on the 15th of March 2019 in Christchurch. Christchurch is the largest city on New Zealand's South Island. The city's population has increased dramatically over the past 70 years, with 170,541 occupants of the city in 1950 rising to 398,520 by 2020. The city's demographic is very cosmopolitan, with 77.9% of people having a European background, 14.9% Asian background and 9.9% of the indigenous Maori background. Christchurch as a city has had a significantly torrid history for one so young. On Tuesday the 18th of November 1947, a fire engulfed Ballantyne's department store in central Christchurch. 41 people died, 39 employees and two auditors who found themselves trapped by the fire or were overcome by smoke whilst evacuating the complex. Upon investigation, the store was found to be without a fire alarm or an evacuation plan. It remains the deadliest fire in New Zealand history. On the 4th of September 2010, at 4.35am, an earthquake which measured 7.1 on the Richter scale rocked the city, causing 3.5 billion New Zealand dollars worth of damage which is about £1.69 billion. Fortunately though, on this occasion, there were no deaths. As my gran used to tell me, things can be replaced, people can't. On Tuesday the 22nd of February 2011, at 12.51pm, a second earthquake measuring 6.2 on the Richter scale rocked the city again. This time, it killed 185 people. Another earthquake hit on the 13th of June 2011, measuring 6.2 on the Richter scale, killing another person. The devastation of the 2011 earthquakes totaled damage to the city of over 6 billion New Zealand dollars. On the whole, though, Although, like most countries, serious crime does exist, but the rates are lower in New Zealand than many other countries. The 2017 Global Peace Index, which compared 162 countries for their risk of personal violence, rated New Zealand as the world's second safest country, just after Iceland. Transparency International's 2017 Corruption Perception Index ranked New Zealand as the least corrupt country in the world, equal with Denmark. And according to the Gun Control Advocacy Group, gunpolicy.org, which was a site hosted by the University of Sydney, New Zealand's population of almost 5 million has around 1.2 million guns in private hands. In the decade leading up to 2013, homicides which cited a gun as the weapon ranged from 3 to 12 deaths per year in the country. The issue is that there is an underbelly of Christchurch, which is not so pleasant. 
Paul Buchanan, a former intelligence and defence policy analyst, said to Reuters news agency that there was a threat from neo-Nazi groups in New Zealand which was well known. Christchurch has a very active white supremacist community, a community that has attacked refugees and people of colour on multiple occasions over the last 20 years, he said. It shows we don't live in a benign environment in this day and age. We've been infected with the virus of extremism. On Thursday, the 14th of March 2019, a man posted a 74-page racist manifesto on the website 8chan called The Great Replacement, explaining why he would shortly be killing Islamic invaders. 8chan is an image board website comprised of user-created message boards. An owner moderates each board with minimal interaction from the site administration. As a result, the site has been linked to white supremacism, neo-Nazism, racism and anti-Semitism, hate crimes and multiple mass shootings, including those in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio, in August 2019. The site was also known for hosting child pornography and, as a result, it was filtered out from Google searches. In this so-called manifesto, the man said he would carry out an attack to take revenge on the invaders for the hundreds of thousands of deaths caused by foreign invaders in European lands. The author described his background as just a regular white man. He said he would carry out the attack to take a stand to ensure a future for my people. The document outlined a series of grievances that the author had plagiarised from far-right propaganda and white nationalist messaging boards. The author pledged to, I quote, take revenge on the invaders for the hundreds of thousands of deaths caused by foreign invaders. The author justified planning an attack on New Zealand because it would highlight that even the relatively remote nation is not free from mass immigration. The document focused on the biased history of Islam and the West, with the author describing a hatred of Muslim immigrants in Europe. He cited the white genocide theory central to white nationalist ideology that held the theory that white people are being deliberately pushed into a demographic minority, in part because their birth rate is lower than that of other ethnic groups. The author claimed to be inspired by far-right mass killers Anders Brevik and Dylan Roof. I appreciate that those names do send chills down most people's spine like mine, but for those who are not sure, Anders Brevik was a Norwegian white nationalist who, on the 22nd of July 2011, detonated a bomb in a van killing eight people in Oslo. He then fled to the island of Utøya 
and killed a further 69 participants of the Workers' Youth League summer camp. Many of his victims were children. Dylan Roof killed nine African Americans at a church in Charleston, South Carolina on the 17th of June 2015, a crime for which he currently sits on death row. The manifesto that sits on the 8chan website was directly linked to the Facebook page of a person by the name of Brenton Tarrant. The following day, Friday the 15th of March, Tarrant set off from his home in Dunedin and made the 361 kilometre or 224 mile journey to Christchurch. At 1.32pm, the manifesto which had been posted online the night before was emailed to public accounts belonging to the New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and around 70 other politicians and media outlets throughout the country. In New Plymouth, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern was about to officially open the WOMAD Music Festival when her office received the unusual email. It spoke in the past tense of an attack that had taken place and had the same manifesto attached to it that the anonymous poster had provided online. A few minutes later, Tarrant began a live stream on his Facebook account. The stream began in an industrial estate on Leslie Hill Drive in the Ricarton area of the city. Close to Hagley Park, the largest urban space in the city. Close to the Musja Al Noor Mosque on Dean's Avenue, where Juma prayers were beginning. The Al Noor Mosque was built between 1984 and 1985 by the Muslim Association of Canterbury, an organisation founded in 1977 that also manages the mosque building. The Saudi Arabian government donated 460,000 New Zealand dollars towards its construction and it is known to be a Sunni mosque. It was estimated that 190 worshippers had gathered at the mosque to say prayers. They were predominantly men of various ages, but the congregation also included women and children. Tarrant had chosen Friday prayers because he knew a large number of people would be assembling at the mosque at that particular time. At 1.39pm, the prayer session began. The Facebook live stream appeared to be recorded with a head-mounted camera and began at around 1.40pm. Tarrant appeared to be playing music as he drove to the mosque, including the British Grenadiers March and the Serbian anti-Muslim hate anthem called Remove Kebab. Once he arrived, he parked the car and opened the car boot, revealing a cache of guns, ammunition and what appeared to be red fuel containers. Picking up two guns, both covered in names and slogans of people who throughout history had attacked mosques, 
he walked around the corner to the entrance of the mosque and began shooting. Still recording live on Facebook. Across the city, Yama Nabi was running late for Zuma. He had stopped at a dealership on the way to the Masjid al-Nur to complete the paperwork for the family's new car and was dithering over whether to drive it to the mosque. He decided to take the old one. Yama's eight-year-old daughter, Zora, was with him. She was coming along to the mosque so that she could see her paternal grandfather, Haji Duad Nabi, for the first time in a couple of weeks. Having left the dealership, she was now busy in the back seat, twisting and turning, trying to get into her clothes for prayer. What neither of them knew was as they raced across Christchurch, Mr Nabi Sr. was already dead. Tarrant had approached the back door of the mosque where Haji Duad Nabi greeted the apparent latecomer with a Hello brother. Without response, he opened fire on the elder with what the police later say they believed was a modified semi-automatic and shot Haji Duad Nabi dead. At this time, he saw four worshippers, Munar Solomon, Said Ali, Amjad Hamid and Hussein Mustafa, blissfully unaware of what had just happened. Without warning, Tarrant discharged his shotgun multiple times in quick succession, killing three of them. A wounded Hussein Mustafa tried to make his escape, but was executed at point-blank range with shots to the back of his head. Tarrant was now inside the mosque. He made his way down the hallway of the mosque to the main prayer area. En route, he met Atta Muhammad Atta Elayan and Ali El Madani. He proceeded to murder both the men with single shots. Still recording everything live on Facebook, Tarrant then entered the main prayer room at the rear of the building. There were over 120 worshippers present. They had all heard the gunfire and anticipating that something was very wrong, they moved to each side of the large open prayer area to where the single exits were in each corner. From his pulpit, Imam Gamal Fowder saw the shooter coming. The man was very calm, the imam says. His face was covered and he wore military-style clothing. Anyone who he thought was still alive, he continued shooting them. Imam Fowder, who hid in his pulpit, told Radio New Zealand later he didn't want anyone to stay alive. When he entered the main prayer room, he initially fired at worshippers who were laying on the ground. He shot Zayad Shah, who succumbed to his injuries. Tarrant then turned to the two large groups gathered on each side of the prayer area. As the shots came, pandemonium erupted. Some people broke windows to escape. There was very little chance of escape and panic was now breaking out amongst the congregation. 
Calmly, Tarrant changed his gun and fired his semi-automatic firearm into the mass of people on one side of the room. The rate of fire was extremely rapid and people were falling to the ground as they were struck. He repeatedly moved his weapon across that side of the room, spraying bullets before turning to the other group of trapped people on the other side of the prayer area. As Tarrant turned his attention to these worshippers, however, a man by the name of Naeem Rashid ran at him. Despite being shot, he crashed into Tarrant, forcing him down to one knee and dislodged a magazine from his protective vest. Naeem Rashid had been hit in the shoulder and this act of bravery had taken his last bit of mortal strength. As he lay on his back, struggling to breathe, Tarrant fired further shots at him. Naeem Rashid died a hero as his sacrifice had allowed a number of his fellow worshippers to escape the gunman. By this stage, Tarrant had emptied a magazine which contained 60 bullets. Once the empty magazine had been replaced with another and standing in the middle of the room, Tarrant fired in rapid bursts towards each side of the prayer room where people were trying to either hide or were attempting to escape. Quickly emptying the rounds from the magazine and reloading yet again, Tarrant continued to shoot at people who were lying prone or trying to escape. He continued to discharge rapid bursts across both sides of the room before approaching individual victims and systematically executing them. As Ashrab Rajib sought to escape from a side room down the hallway to the main entrance, Tarrant shot and killed him. By this time, there were already many dead. Due to the fact that Tarrant's victims had all been heading in the same direction, he was shooting the lifeless bodies and started to literally pile them up. People were lying deceased, wounded or feigning death on each side of the main prayer room. Worshippers who were either crying out for help or who appeared to be alive, Tarrant ruthlessly shot them in the head. One of those even more tragically than most was a three-year-old child, Mukard Ibrahim. He was clinging to his father's leg, hysterically crying. Tarrant murdered him with two aimed shots. At this point, Tarrant made his way out of the mosque, checking prone victims as he went to ensure that they were dead. Outside, people who had been peacefully attending a house of worship were now fleeing for their lives. Tarrant, spotting them, shot at people attempting to flee. He shot Muhammad Farouk in the back, killing him. Wasim Daragmir and his four-year-old daughter were also hit by stray bullets, but survived despite receiving life-threatening wounds. Tarrant turned around and fired in the opposite direction, hitting Sazada Akhtar in the spine, 
confining her to a wheelchair for the rest of her life. Having run out of ammunition, Tarrant discarded his weapon and returned to his vehicle where he armed himself with another military-style semi-automatic firearm fitted with two 40-round magazines. He fired his weapon down the side driveway towards the back of the mosque, murdering Musa Awali and Hamza Mustafa, a 16-year-old boy who had escaped from the main prayer room and was sheltering behind vehicles. Tarrant then returned to the main prayer room. As he entered, he saw Mojamal Huck, who was wounded, sitting up against a window. Showing no mercy, he aimed one shot at Mojamal Huck, killing him instantly, before firing further shots at a group of people lying in one corner, delivering fatal shots to those who he saw was still alive. Tarrant discarded his empty magazine and reloaded his weapon. He then proceeded to walk over to the group of people lying on the opposite corner and fired further shots into those who were either deceased or mortally wounded. Any person who showed any sign of life was shot. Tarrant shot Anzi Ali Bava and Hunza Ahmed. Hunza Ahmed was killed, Anzi Alibava was wounded. While she lay on the street pleading for help, he murdered the defenceless young woman, firing two shots at her from point-blank range. Tarrant then returned to his vehicle and inflicted the indignity of driving over her body as she lay in front of the driveway from which he exited. As he fled the scene, he blasted out the song Fire by the Crazy World of Arthur Brown, in which the singer proclaimed, I am the god of hellfire, firing at people in cars and on foot as he fled. His Facebook Live was still running. He had spent a total of about six minutes at the Al Nur Mosque less time than it has taken for me to describe this heinous act to you. At 1.46pm, as Tarrant drove away from the mosque, the Armed Offenders Squad, or the AOS, arrived near the scene. Police Commissioner Mike Bush later said that at that point Tarrant was already leaving the area, his car hidden by a bus. AOS members did not know how many shooters there were and were not informed that the offender had left the mosque. At 1.51pm, the first responders arrived at the Al Nur Mosque. About three minutes after Tarrant had left, his vehicle passed by one or more police vehicles responding to the shooting, but remained undetected by police as he continued on his way eastward on Beeley Avenue. By this time, the world's news agencies were also starting to report on the incident. 
We have breaking news and a major emergency unfolding in Christchurch, New Zealand. As we go to air right now, there are reports that at least six people have been shot at a mosque. A gunman with an automatic weapon has opened fire on a mosque in central Christchurch. We are on standby for a statement from the Prime Minister at four o'clock. There are unconfirmed reports as many as 27 people are dead, including children. We must stress those numbers are unconfirmed, just reports at this stage. So we have heard about the barbaric act. I think it is about time that we put some faces to what are just statistics at the moment and pay tribute to those who lost their lives at the Al Noor Mosque. Abdu Qadir Almi's exact age when he was killed was not known and varies between 65 and 75 depending on where you look. He had survived the civil war in Somalia and came to New Zealand around 2009 with his family. Known as the Sheikh, Abdu Qadir was a well-known figure in the Christchurch Muslim community. He was a giant in the community and amongst the most recognisable faces in the mosque, his son Saeed Elmi said in tribute on his Facebook page. Kids would run to grab his chair when they heard the noise of his cane hitting against the ground upon his entrance. He was loved for his generosity and his fundraising efforts. He was survived by his wife of nearly 50 years, five sons and four daughters. Abdul Fattah Kazim was 60 years old when he was killed. He was of Palestinian origin but also had Jordanian nationality. He was the former secretary of the Muslim Association of Canterbury and was a respected elder in the Muslim community. He helped with interpretation for refugees and migrants from the Middle East and assisted them in understanding documentation and integrated them into the local community. He was a massive man, a giant. He had a heart of gold. He was that fantastic person who just wanted everyone to be amazing. His son-in-law told the website Stuff. Ahmed Abdul Ghani was 68 years old when he was killed and was born in Egypt. My dad was a good, kind man, his son Omar told the BBC. Him and mum had great jobs and were well off in Egypt, but they immigrated to New Zealand in 1996 for me, for my education so that I could have a better chance to study what I wanted. We have been here for 23 years. He had many friends and family who loved him, he added. He was a pure-hearted soul who never treated anybody badly. Ali El Madani was 66 years old when he was killed and he had emigrated to New Zealand from the United Arab Emirates with his family in 1998. He was a retired engineer and was killed whilst he was praying, his wife told the New Zealand Herald. We should be strong, especially in this case. I lose my husband, 
but I'm not angry. I am sad because I don't get to see him again. I don't talk to him again. I am happy at the same time because it happened whilst he prayed. I take comfort because he was a good man. Amjad Hamid was a Palestinian national and was 57 years old when he was killed. Amjad Hamid specialised in cardiorespiratory illnesses for the Canterbury District Health Board. Rosemary Clements, the chief executive of the Taranaki DHB, said, Dr Hamid's presence will be dearly missed by his colleagues and those who knew him. He was well liked for his kindness, compassion and sense of humour. He was a hard-working doctor, deeply committed to caring for his patients and a thoughtful team member who was supportive of all staff. When he returned to Harwira Hospital, he often brought fresh baklava from a bakery in Christchurch for everyone. Anzi Alibava was 24 years old when she was killed. She was at the mosque with her husband, who worked in a local supermarket. The pair had moved to Christchurch from Kerala in India in February 2018, so that Ansi could study for her master's degree in agricultural engineering. She loved all people, cousins, friends, Mr Nazir told BBC. She kept a big space in her mind for family members. He said that she had been living her dream by studying and travelling in New Zealand. Neither of them had previously been outside of Kerala. She was awarded a posthumous master's degree in commerce from Lincoln University. Ashraf Ali was 58 years old when he was killed and ran his own taxi company in Suva on his home island of Fiji. He was on his yearly sabbatical to visit Christchurch to see his brother Ramzan and he had only arrived six days earlier. In a conversation with the New Zealand Herald, Ashraf's brother told of the pain of identifying his brother after he had escaped. It was the Fijian rugby shirt that made Ashraf Ali stand out. Ramzan Ali was scanning the grainy footage taken from inside the mosque, looking for a glimpse of his younger brother. He saw a grey-haired man lying prone on a pile of dead bodies, wearing the black and white rugby shirt of his home country. That's him, Ramzan said, Straight away I knew 95% I was certain he was dead. 5% in me was saying he could have survived. The brothers, two of nine children, had headed to the mosque for Friday prayers. Ashraf sat on the ground in front of Ramzan, who had to rest on a bench at the back of the room because of a sore hip. When the gunman came into the mosque with guns blazing, Ramzan hid behind the bench 
then later escaped out of a window. People were gunned down right next to him and he believed he was the last person to get out of the mosque alive. Ashraf al-Mazari was an Egyptian national who was 54 years old. He has only been announced by the Egyptian embassy as a victim. No other information is known apart from the fact that he was a father of two school-aged children. His body was returned to his homeland for burial. As with Ashraf al-Mazi, Ashraf Morsi was an Egyptian national who was also 54 years old. He has only been announced by his brother Khalid through BBC Arabic. No other information is known about him apart from the fact that he was a father of two school-aged children. His mother had been so heartbroken by the death of her son. Asif Vora was 56 years old at the time of his death and was residing in Gujarat, India. He and his wife had only travelled to Christchurch a month earlier because he had recently just become a grandfather. He was killed alongside his son, Ramiz Vora, who was 28 years old. He had travelled to Christchurch from India seven years earlier and had recently become a father for the first time. In fact, Ramiz was praying for the health of his baby girl when he was killed alongside his father. His baby had been in an incubator for five days since her birth and Ramiz only had one chance to hold her and that was just for a few minutes. On the 15th of March he had dropped off his wife and mother at Christchurch Hospital and then headed to the mosque with his father. Ramiz told his wife that he would only be about 10 minutes as he headed towards the mosque. He said he would pray for his baby so that he could have a home. He worked at Tijil as a halal slaughterman and had been eagerly awaiting the arrival of his first child. Ramiz had taken the week off and was staying at the hospital with his wife. In the days to come, he would only get to hold his daughter once for a few minutes. Firstly, he was scared to hold her, but his wife told him that nothing would happen. Atta Elian was born on the 21st of June 1985 in Kuwait. Atta was of Palestinian ancestry, with his father having been from the Abu Dis region of East Jerusalem. In the early 1990s, the family had moved to Oregon in the United States, before later moving to Christchurch. When in New Zealand, he discovered a love for football, especially the indoor version of futsal. Now being a national of New Zealand, he played internationally in goal for the New Zealand national futsal team, making 19 appearances. Haji Dawid al-Nabi was 71 years old when he was killed. He was born in Afghanistan, but moved his family to New Zealand in the 1980s to escape the Soviet invasion. 
he is believed to be the first victim of the shooting. He was an engineer, reportedly with a love of vintage cars, but in his retirement was a community leader in New Zealand. He was president of a local Afghan association and was a known supporter of other migrant groups, his son Omar told NBC News. Whether you're from Palestine, Iraq, Syria, he's been the first person to hold his hands up. Fahaj Arsan was 30 years old and had lived in New Zealand for 10 years after coming from Hyderabad, India and worked as an electrical engineer. He was married with two young children, a three-year-old daughter and a six-month-old son. Hamza Mustafa had just turned 16 two days before the shooting. He was a Syrian refugee and was killed along with his father, Khalid. His brother, Zaid, survived but required a six-hour life-changing operation. A piece of birthday cake was still in the family refrigerator, waiting for him to come home. Speaking to Radio New Zealand, his mother said, He called me shortly after the shooting started. He said, Mum, there's someone in the mosque shooting us. She heard the gunfire and called out to Hamza over the phone. He couldn't answer me, but I could hear he was trying to say something in a very low voice. I held the phone for 22 minutes, trying to connect with him. His phone was on, he didn't close his phone. Hamza, Hamza, tell me what's happening, Hamza. Hamza was one of two students from the Kashmir High School who was killed. Head teacher Mark Wilson described him as compassionate and a great student. Despite not being there for very long, he had made a lot of friends. Harun Mahmood was 40 years old when he was killed. He was originally from Pakistan and had moved to Christchurch in 2014 to study for a PhD in finance. Lincoln University posthumously awarded him his master's degree. Dr Mahmood's two young children were each given a teddy bear when they walked onto the stage with their mother. His daughter wiped tears from her eyes, as did some academic staff. It was hard, but it was wonderful to see them come, University Vice-Chancellor Bruce McKenzie said. It was very moving, for what it was. There was a lot of tears. Haroon used to work as a tutor at the university and was an assistant professor at Canterbury College, a private school for international students. Husna Ahmed was 44 years old at the time of her death and was originally from Bangladesh. She was in the women's area of the mosque, but she was killed after running into the man's area to search for her husband, Farid Udan Ahmed, who was partially paralysed and used a wheelchair. Before that, she had guided the women and children to safety 
before running back in to help others. Fortunately, Mr. Ahmed survived the attack. Several months after her death, her grieving husband found some solace in writing about her life. Pouring his heart out onto his computer soon became a manuscript and a book which Mr. Ahmed donated all of the proceeds from to the St. John's Ambulance Service. Hussein Al-Unari was 35 and originally from the United Arab Emirates. He had moved to New Zealand in the 1990s. He had died a hero whilst attempting to challenge Tarrant. Hussein Mustafi was 70 years old and was from Egypt. He had moved to New Zealand in 1999 and like many that I have spoken about here, was now a volunteer in the community following his retirement. He had prayed in the same corner of the mosque for 20 years. Junad Kara Ishmael was 36 years old and ran a corner shop in Christchurch. He had originally been from India and his twin brother Zahid told New Zealand's Checkpoint programme that after he had survived the shooting, I want him back. I would rather that I went than him. I'm the naughty twin. He's the better one. And that's how it is. Junad left behind a wife and three children. Mamal Mohammed Kamal Darwesh was 39 years old at the time of his death and had only migrated to New Zealand from Jordan six months prior. He had been working on a dairy farm and was waiting for his wife and children to be granted permission to join him. Mahabub Kolkar was 65 years old and from Gujarat, India, where he was a retired manager of a local power utility. He was visiting New Zealand for the first time with his wife to see their son who had left India in 2010. His son Imran said he had dropped off his father at the Al Noor Mosque and was waiting for him in the car park when he heard screams. He rushed to the door but was unable to get through as people blocked his way. His father had been killed. Mutiala Safi was 55 years old at the time of his death and had moved to New Zealand from Afghanistan in 2010 and was the father of six children. Mutiala Safi fled his war-torn homeland hoping to find refuge from gunfire in New Zealand. Death was still a bullet, even coming to the safest place in the world his nephew Harry Khan told the New Zealand Herald. He said he will remember his uncle as a kind, selfless and devoutly religious man who always had a smile on his face. Even though he had faced some tough things in life, Safi had continued to want to help others, he said. He had been through a lot. He had lost his brother to the war in Afghanistan and because of that he had moved to India, Mr Khan said. 
Omar Farouk was 36 when he died and was from Bangladesh. Omar was in Christchurch working as a welder and his wife had stayed in Bangladesh. Omar's wife said he usually had to work Fridays but was let off work early. He called her to say that he was going to the mosque for Friday prayers. Omar's employer, Rob Van Peer, told Reuters he was loved by his colleagues for his loyal and friendly personality and fast, precise welds. Mosem Mohammed Al Harbri was 63 years old and was originally from Saudi Arabia. He had lived in New Zealand for 25 years. He had survived the initial attack, but later had died in hospital. His wife had suffered a heart attack while searching for him. Doctors worked urgently to save him, but he died eight hours after being rushed to Christchurch Hospital. We accept his destiny and Allah's will, his son told Arab News. I am grateful and thankful to Allah in all situations and circumstances. He worked in water desalination, which is the removal of salt from water. Shalwell Home Products, where he worked, paid tribute to their former colleague. Rest in peace, Mohsin Al-Habri, the company posted on Facebook. Mohsin was a former team member who was known to be a born salesman, a real character and a kind and caring Kiwi, it said. Faris Al-Habi said his father was a good man, a devout Muslim who was also a part-time imam and sometimes gave the Friday sermon. My father lived a full life. It was a good life. Mojemal Huck was born on the 14th of April 1988 and was 30 years old when he died and had only been in New Zealand for two years. Originally from Bangladesh, he was a dental student He had moved to New Zealand without any family, but with his dream, which was to move back to Bangladesh, open a dental clinic for the poor and marry his fiancée. He will never get to see out those dreams. Munir Suleiman was 68 years old and originally from Egypt. He had been a design engineer and quality manager for Scots Engineering in Christchurch for two decades. He never missed Friday prayers and would go to the mosque every day. He also prayed at work. Suleiman was a lovely man who would be missed with both his personality and for his vital role in the company, a spokesman said. He had no children and was survived by his wife, Ekram. This is the hardest one. Mukad Ibrahim was just three years old and was the only member of his family who died following the attack. Mukad was born in Christchurch, though his family was from Somalia. 
he was with his father and brother at the mosque when he was killed. His father and brother escaped. He was a clever boy who could already read sections of the Quran. He loved his dad and his brothers and enjoyed being at the mosque. Every Friday night he would watch his family play football at Hagley Park. He was energetic, playful and liked to smile and laugh a lot, his brother Abdi said. Lilik Abdul Hamid, also known as Muhammad Abdul Hamid, moved to Christchurch from Jakarta in Indonesia with his wife in 2003 and was 58 years old when he lost his life. He was an aircraft maintenance engineer for Air New Zealand and also served as the chairman of the Indonesian Students Association, the Aviation and Marine Engineers Association said he was well liked. His daughter told Radio New Zealand, We never felt alone with his personality. He was always making friends with everyone. Abdus Samad was born on February the 23rd, 1953. A Bangladeshi by birth, he lived in New Zealand with his wife and two sons. Samad had grown up in a poor, remote village in northern Bangladesh. He studied animal science in Bangladesh, later becoming a professor at university. He lectured at Christchurch's Lincoln University, where he studied for his PhD in the 1980s with Bruce McKenzie, who we've already heard from earlier. He sometimes led prayers at the mosque. Musa Noor Awali was 77 years old at the time of his death. Originally from Somalia, Musa had been in New Zealand for over 30 years. He was married to Mubo Ali Jama with no children. Up until the previous year, he had been a marriage celebrant for the Muslim Association of Canterbury and had previously taught religious studies at the mosque and at Hagley School. Naeem Rashid was originally from Abbottabad in Pakistan but had relocated to New Zealand in 2012. He was a teacher in Christchurch for the Kiwi Institute of Training and Education. His eldest son, Tala, also died in the attack. In the video of the attack, Naeem Rashid is at one point seen attempting to tackle the gunman. Mr Rashid was badly injured and he was taken to hospital where he later died. Naeem's brother said he was proud of his actions after seeing the video. He was a brave person. They've said he saved a few lives, thereby trying to stop that guy. Tala Rashid was Naeem's son and was 21 years old when he was killed. Tala was a regular at the Al Noor Mosque and would often ride his bike there. One witness of the shooting said when Tala was shot, he fell on top of another worshipper, using his last words to urge them to stay still.
Tala had just earned a job as an engineer and was providing for his mother and two brothers. He was always the person who was very helpful, said his mother. All his friends, everyone said he was always telling them to be positive and do the right thing. Osama Adnan Abu Quelek was 37 years old when he was murdered and he was born in Gaza. His family were of Palestinian origin, but he grew up in Egypt. He had a master's degree in engineering, but was unable to find work in Egypt, so moved his family to New Zealand to find a job. He told his wife the week before he died that he loved New Zealand so much he wanted to live, die and be buried in it, said his brother Yusuf. Ozar Qadir was born in Saudi Arabia to Indian parents with roots in Hyderabad. He was 25 years old when he was killed. He had been living in Christchurch for about a year and studying aviation with dreams of becoming a pilot. Saeed Milner was 14 years old at the time of the shooting. The second Kashmir High School student who was killed in the shooting, he grew up in Corsair Bay near Littleton, 12 kilometres south of Christchurch. He was described by his sister as good nature and a sporty teenager who loved football. He had dreams of being an international footballer and played as goalie. His sister said he was a loving and kind brother and will be greatly missed. Mohammed Sahail Sahid was 40 years old when he was shot. Sahail moved from Pakistan to New Zealand in 2017 in search for a better future. He had a master's degree in chemical engineering from the Punjab University and was working as a production manager. Saeed Arib Ahmed was 27 years old when he was killed. Saeed was new to Christchurch, having moved to New Zealand from Karachi in Pakistan about 18 months prior. He had recently moved to Christchurch to work as a chartered accountant on the secondment to the Price Waterhouse Coopers with the intention of supporting his family back in Pakistan. He was an only son. Arib was a loved and respected member of our PWC family who lived our values every day, the company said. Mohammed Mazik bin Mohammed Tamizi was 17 years old when he was killed and was of Malaysian descent. He was praying with his family when the attack took place. They all survived the attack apart from him. He was in year 12 at Burnside High School and was a bright student. He was a great young man who had a lot of respect for his mates and teachers, Principal Phil Holstein said. Conscientious, self-motivated and just wanted to do well. Teachers noted that he had grown in confidence in the short time he had been there 
he was ready, as one teacher said, to flourish. Zakira Tayun was 46 years old when he was killed. He was a Turkish national and had previously been living in Singapore, working in IT. He was the last victim of the Christchurch shooting to die, passing away in hospital six weeks after the incident. It's insane to think that everything that has happened in this episode happened over a period of 21 minutes. 1.30pm to 1.51pm. The worst thing is that Tarrant wasn't finished yet. He was back in his car and had a second target in sight. Oh, and he was also still recording to over 300,000 people on Facebook Live. Still to come, where was Tarrant off to? What happened at the Linwood Majid? Who was Tarrant? What was the reaction of the world's media and politicians? What happened when Tarrant was finally caught? So that's it for this week. I hope that you've enjoyed this change of approach, even if the subject matter is slightly different. Please let me know what you think, in case I think it's working and I end up losing everybody that normally listens to me. Please remember, if you enjoy the show or want to know more, please follow us on Twitter, at TrueCrimeFixPod. That's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. The podcast also has a Facebook page, True Crime Fix Podcast, but there's also a fan page, True Crime Fix Discussion. I'm thoroughly enjoying interacting with everybody on there, and this is where I post the majority of the information on the week's cases. Also a reminder that the podcast is on Patreon, so please visit www.patreon.com forward slash True Crime Fix Podcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search True Crime Fix. Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.